Welcome to episode 10 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. In terms of the major news at the moment, the latest figures unveiled by CFAS, the UK's fraud prevention service, highlight the fact that 2019 witnessed the highest ever number of cases of fraudulent conduct recorded to the National Fraud Database. Last year, there were close on 365,000 cases recorded. This represents a 13% rise when compared to 2018. More specifically, there were three areas where the greatest rise occurred. Identity fraud, misuse of facility and facility takeover, all of which recorded the highest levels of cases over the last five years. Identity fraud rose by nearly 20% in 2019, accounting for the largest number of cases recorded by CFAS members at 61%. People aged over 31 were specifically targeted by this type of fraudulent conduct, with the volume of victims aged 60 and over on the rise. The highest number of victims, 68% of them in fact, were recorded in the southeast region. Cases categorised as misuse of facility accounted for nearly a quarter of all those recorded on the National Fraud Database, with this type of activity growing by 64% over the last five years. Bank accounts were specifically targeted, it appears. Behaviours associated with money mulling have accounted for nearly three quarters of these cases. Young people were particularly vulnerable to this type of activity, with 62% of cases bearing the hallmarks of money mule activity involving young people under the age of 30. London recorded the highest levels of such criminality, followed by the West Midlands region, which saw the most significant rise in cases. Facility takeover reached the highest level ever in 2019. It's up 105% over the past five years, with this type of conduct accounting for nearly one in every 10 of all the cases on the National Fraud Database. The majority of victims were aged between 41 and 50, with this age group witnessing a 43% increase in cases last year when compared to 2018. Telecom's products were the most targeted, accounting for over half of all the cases recorded to the National Fraud Database last year. However, it was online retail that saw one of the most significant rises in cases. There were 3,815 cases in 2019, compared to 1,903 in 2018. The largest number of victims of facility takeover live in the London and South West regions. Technology has played a key role in facilitating fraudulent conduct, with 87% of identity fraud in 2019 occurring through online channels. Details are mostly obtained through smishing and phishing attacks, whereby victims are tricked into giving personal and financial information, believing that they were being contacted by legitimate organisations. The spoofing of websites of well-known brands was also a key theme over the year, whereby a website is made to look like a known service provider in order to obtain personal details. Overall, and maybe somewhat unsurprisingly, the largest number of cases occurred in the London region, which recorded 31% of all those cases involved. That's twice the rate of the rest of the UK, in fact. This was followed by the West Midlands, the Eastern region and the North West region. What, then, are the key takeaways from all of this? While the steady increase in fraudulent conduct over the last few years is a stark warning that all of us must start taking this threat seriously, we all need to take a step back and consider how we can change our behaviours. For their part, businesses must look at how they can better safeguard their systems and protect their customers' data while individuals need to be constantly vigilant of forces trying to steal their personal and financial information. There's no doubt that the COVID-19 pandemic has created new opportunities for criminals to steal money and information. The overriding concern now is that the current economic uncertainty will fuel the flames of fraudulent activity still further. Action must be taken now. If not, the high levels of fraudulent conduct we're currently seeing will just be the tip of the iceberg when compared to the year ahead when the recession really begins to bite deep. 
The next news item on the agenda this time around will be of great interest to the security solutions providers in the industry. The Defence and Security Accelerator has just launched an innovation competition with the aim of developing new capabilities for police and law enforcement agencies designed to stop armed or violent offenders with a minimal necessary force from distance. The Advancing Less Lethal Weapons Project seeks proposals for innovative technologies from industry and academia that can temporarily stop a violent or armed subject to prevent the escalation of conflict or the destruction of property. The technologies themselves would allow the use of less lethal means as an alternative to firearms in some scenarios, giving police officers more versatile and effective options to defuse dangerous situations in order to keep the public safe without having to resort to lethal force. An initial £500,000 worth of funding is available for innovators, with up to £500,000 additional funding for a later phase of the project. The scope of this competition, which is run on behalf of the Home Office, includes looking at technologies that have not before been operationally deployed, as well as investigating combinations of technologies that may provide better solutions. The proposed technologies would need to reach a distance of 50 metres to meet the police service requirement, while up to 70 metres could also meet potential military requirements. The ability to mark a subject in order to identify them at a later stage would also be desirable. There are two tracks to the competition, one looking at low maturity technologies and the other at medium maturity technologies. Full details of the competition's scope and the tracks themselves can be found in the competition documents on the Defence, Science and Technology Laboratories website. The competition closes for submissions at noon on 13-15th of October. This funded call follows on from a market exploration which was conducted by the Defence and Security Accelerator on behalf of the Home Office and the Police Service late last year. The previous call focused on near-market and mature solutions for similar police problems. In contrast, this call is looking for technologies at technical readiness levels between 3 and 7. A dial-in session will provide further detail on the competition and a chance to ask questions in an open forum. Interested parties can register on the Eventbrite page. Again, the link to this can be found on the DSTL's webpage. In addition, a series of 20-minute one-to-one teleconference sessions, again offering interested parties the opportunity to ask specific questions, will take place on the 9th and 24th of September. Our first guest on episode 10 of the Security Matters podcast is David Ward, the CEO and former Managing Director of Ward Security, an SIA-approved contractor scheme registered company which specialises in security guarding solutions, key holding and also alarm response for myriad clients. A member of the Security Institute, David has worked at Ward Security for just over 23 years and has recently been at the forefront of the industry's push for key worker status when it comes to security officers and their vital role. David is a board trustee for the Cross-Sector Safety and Security Communications Initiative and also founder and chair of the City Security Council. The latter is a collective of premier security companies based in the City of London that work in collaboration with the City of London Police and also the City of London Corporation to offer support in times of crisis or when any significant major events take place in the square mile. Earlier this week, I chatted with David about the City Security Council, rates of pay for security officers, and also what new measures Ward Security itself has put in place during the pandemic. David, how has Ward Security fared during the pandemic and what lessons have you learned as a business to date? Ward Security have fared uh, pretty well considering all that's gone on. The team have performed amazingly well and have enjoyed great support from the clients. The frontline officers particularly have been, you know, absolutely amazing. Service deliveries haven't dropped at all. And and I think we've learned that probably that there are new ways to communicate is probably the biggest thing we have learnt and that communication, as we've always known, has been very important. But through COVID have definitely demonstrated that. So regular Zoom calls, team calls, even, you know, phoning the officers. I, I took time myself to phone the officers in the evening just to see how they were. One or two thought it was a wind-up, which was always encouraging. But um, to actually take that time out and communicate with our team, let them know that we are thinking of them and that we are still there working with them, 
communication definitely is a big thing for, for, for the whole for the whole um, outbreak of COVID. And further to that, David, what new measures have you put in place to protect your team members while continuing to provide a strong service for the client base? So we've looked very heavily at the risk assessments on site to ensure that people are safe to work on site, but also at home as well. Obviously, home working has become a big, a big thing. So making sure that people are safe to work at home and ensuring that our staff have the required training where necessary and equipment where necessary to ensure they can carry out their duties in a safe manner still. Now, you recently helped to establish, and you're now the chair indeed, of the City Security Council, David. How important has the council become over the last 12 months, do you feel? And what's the overriding value to member companies, the police, and indeed the security industry as a whole? I'm really proud of the City Security Council. It was something that was sitting in my mind for a while. And I think, you know, being able to get it off the ground and having the support of 25 companies now. I mean, the industry turns over allegedly 4.4 billion. The group themselves represent 2.2 billion that turnover so maybe you know a small number of people but a very large um, impact on the industry to be able to do things like the training exercise in the eastern quarter last year where we had a number of different buildings involved and a number of different security companies involved before they may have had the training exercises with the police and fire brigade and others without involving us going forward it's been agreed that we will be involved in these exercises we will work across a wider platform so that it's not just a single security company, it's a number of companies working together. Because as and when the next incident occurs, of course, we'll all be in it together. So let's all work and train together. And things like uh, recent protest marches, officers were deployed in high-vis vests. They were working together with the police and servitor teams to be the eyes and ears to help the police force on the ground and to add that further layer of information and, and, and just to try and help assist further. There's been a lot of talk around the need to pay essential workers more and recognise them for the professionals they are, given the importance of their roles, David. You're known as someone who has spoken a lot about this within the context of the security officer's role in particular. What are your thoughts on this, given the renewed importance the pandemic has placed on key roles? And how do we ensure that improved rates of pay are actually delivered for security officers on the ground? I think the pandemic has been a step change for our industry, um, despite the fact we've been involved in almost every major incident that's occurred in the UK, um, there's always a security officer at scene, if not first, if not very soon after. And I think um, it's very difficult because obviously the clients are going to have to fund this and they're going to want to know, want to have something in return for their money. Um, I've just come off a call with 12 HR um, representatives from the 12 members, 12 of the members of the CSC, and we are talking about. How do we give the clients further added value, but how do we improve the security officer's value as well? So we're discussing ideas such as grading schemes for the officers and related pay to those grading schemes so that the officer knows what training they require to get to the next level and the client knows what they're going to get when they get that level two or level three officer and why they cost a little bit more because they're actually a higher skilled representative and therefore deserve to be paid you know, the right rate of pay. Many of our clients are very supportive of this initiative and are supporting the officers generally. But I think to get the, the industry as a whole to look at this and understand that we need to work together to deliver better quality officers, better trained officers who should be paid accordingly. Many of our officers are highly skilled and not, you know, don't get paid accordingly. With more people working from home on a remote basis, David, is the role of the security officer gradually at risk of becoming redundant, do you think? And can you envisage a day when technology actually replaces boots on the ground? 
I think COVID has very much made us look at how we operate going forward. I think there will always be the need for personal interaction, the security officer meeting and greeting, the security officer providing that visual reassurance and visual um, deterrence. There may be um, a, a slight reduction in numbers in some locations, and I think technology will always be part of that for, for that reason. I think that you know, CCTV and access control systems, as we've demonstrated ourselves recently with remote access management, you know, through our water security control room, you know, my team in Chatham open barriers in, in, in Nottingham, so the officer doesn't need to be there. But, as I said at the beginning of this, you know, the officers are a visible uh, presence, they are a, a reassurance, and I think... You know, I think there will still be a need for a decent level of security support in, 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 in our industry. And lastly, David, is the security industry offering enough incentives, do you feel, to attract good people to it? What more should or could the sector be doing to ensure that there are educated and bright people queuing up to join our profession? I think our industry has trained, uh, changed tremendously in the, last, in the last 10 years. And I think it's very encouraging to see that many of us, our team become highly skilled and professional people. One of our officers recently wanted to look at joining the police force and found that he would have to take a £15,000 pay cut to do so. So I think the money's right. I think our ambition to train and develop people more is there as well. And I think initiatives like that carried out by the Security Institute through Paul Barnard and the Young Apprenticeship type scheme, you know, is what we need to do. We need to make people aware, the younger people aware, that our industry has far much more to offer than they realise and, and to bring them in because... You know, we are a growing industry. We have a need for more qualified people and, and you know, to bring youngsters through and, and to learn from their expertise and knowledge as well, we think, help the industry. So I think a lot of the right things are in play. We just need to, as a, as a group, collectively support and encourage us more. Returning to the news now, and the British Security Industry Association is urging security installers to take swift action on their alarm signalling estates in advance of the transition to an all-IP fibre-based voice service, with migration in some areas taking place as early as this coming autumn. Security system installers need to be aware of several key points here. By way of example, OpenReach is upgrading the existing analog telephone network to an all-IP service, with a plan to migrate to a full voice-over internet protocol digital platform by the end of 2025. In essence, these changes are happening because the PSTN system is dated and difficult to maintain, and also due to the fact that there's now a global drive towards digital technologies. The electronic security industry will see the effects of the migration later this year, when BT Consumer plans to expand its digital voice customer criteria to include special services like security and fire alarms, as well as care pendants. Installers may start to receive inquiries from their customers asking precisely how existing alarm systems may be affected. Further, OpenReach is running IP voice trials in the Salisbury and Mildenhall exchange areas. PSTN services will no longer be sold in these areas from December this year and May 2021 respectively. Based on OpenReach data, approximately 30,000 residential and business premises are located in these exchange footprints. Any of these premises with an alarm that currently uses a PSTN line for signalling will be affected. From June 2021, a further 117 priority exchanges across the UK will be migrated to the IP voice service, duly affecting up to 1.2 million end-user customers. After this date, PSTN services will no longer be sold in these exchange areas, which include Belfast, Birmingham, Cornwall, London, 
Manchester, Leeds and Liverpool. There are no less than 5,600 open-reach exchanges to upgrade in total and quarterly announcements are expected for exchanges subject to migration in order to meet the 2025 deadline. A great many security systems are subject to police service and or insurance policy conditions of course and customers have an expectation that their system will function on the new IP voice service. For their part, installers need to be diligent in ensuring this remains the case. Ofcom and all telecom stakeholders are also urging security installers and the wider industry to take action such that they're all fully prepared for the changes ahead. Alarm signalling will be affected and installers should contact their signalling service providers to limit the impact of the transition process on their customers. Commenting on this issue, David Wilkinson, the Director of Technical Services at the BSIA, has stated, We've been keeping our industry sector up to date with the changes as they've developed. Given the recent announcements from OpenReach, Ofcom and communication providers, our message has escalated to a call to action, asking installers to take proactive steps towards mitigating the risks of systems that may fail to operate if left unchecked. Our final news item is one that's actually escalated to the mainstream media's agenda. Civil rights and privacy campaigning group Liberty has won what the organisation describes as a groundbreaking legal challenge against police use of what it terms oppressive facial recognition technology. The Court of Appeal has agreed with Liberty's submissions on behalf of 37-year-old Cardiff resident Ed Bridges, finding that South Wales Police's use of facial recognition technology breaches privacy rights, data protection laws and equality laws. The judgment means that the police force leading on the use of facial recognition on the UK streets must now halt its long-running trial. The Court of Appeal held that there were fundamental deficiencies in the legal framework and also that Ed Bridges' rights were breached as a result. The ruling also states, and I quote, The fact remains, however, that South Wales Police has never sought to satisfy itself, either directly or by way of independent verification, that the software programme in this case does not have an unacceptable bias on grounds of race or sex. This is the world's first legal challenge to the police service's use of facial recognition technology, which Liberty has long argued is an inherently oppressive and discriminatory surveillance tool. Commenting on the judgment, Ed Bridges himself stated, I'm delighted the Court of Appeal has agreed that facial recognition clearly threatens our rights. This technology is an intrusive and discriminatory mass surveillance tool. For three years now, South Wales Police has been using it against hundreds of thousands of us without our consent, and often without our knowledge. We should all be able to use our public spaces without being subjected to oppressive surveillance. Liberty's lawyer Megan Goulding has added, This judgment is a major victory in the fight against discriminatory and oppressive facial recognition. The Court of Appeal has agreed that this dystopian surveillance tool violates our rights and threatens our liberties. It's absolutely right that the Court Court of Appeal found that South Wales Police had failed in its duty to investigate and avoid discrimination. It's time for the government to recognise the serious dangers of this intrusive technology. Facial recognition is a threat to our freedom. It needs to be banned. Looking at the background to the case, in September 2019, the High Court found that South Wales Police's use of facial recognition is not unlawful, but that facial recognition interferes with the privacy rights of everyone scanned by a camera. Come May last year, 500,000 people may have been scanned by South Wales Police. The High Court found the current legal framework to be adequate while warning that it would have to be subject to periodic review. Liberty challenged that ruling at the Court of Appeal in June this year, arguing that it didn't fully account for the ways in which the technology breaches privacy and data protection rights. The Court of Appeal has now overturned the previous ruling, finding that the legal framework relied upon by South Wales Police doesn't protect privacy rights. The Court of Appeal also found that South Wales Police had failed to adequately take account of the discriminatory impact of facial recognition technology and had also failed to meet its obligations under equality laws. The decision observes that, by scanning faces, the technology processes unique and sensitive data 
and that South Wales Police breached requirements for that processing under data protection legislation. The Metropolitan Police Service began regularly using facial recognition earlier this year, despite a review of its own trials finding the technology may be unlawful for similar reasons to those Liberty and Ed Bridges have raised. To date, Liberty's petition calling for a ban on the use of facial recognition technology in public has been signed by nearly 50,000 people. Interestingly, Surveillance Camera Commissioner Tony Porter has responded to the Court of Appeal's judgment by welcoming its findings. Porter has repeatedly called for open debate from all sides on this very important issue. If there is to be an ethical and evolutionary process for the legitimate use of automated facial recognition technology by the state, then Porter feels it's essential the public has trust in the technology itself, its legal and regulatory controls, and the honesty of endeavour by the police service. On that note, Porter observed, The Court of Appeal case, its submissions and findings are a key element of that evolutionary process. The spirit in which all parties contributed to these important appeal proceedings is to their great credit and the Court of Appeal has rightly acknowledged this. Porter is particularly encouraged by the approach to these proceedings taken by South Wales Police, which, he feels, has worked so hard to be transparent and ethical in its approach towards using facial recognition systems in this pilot phase. Porter has noted the issues in the judgment regarding bias that can be inherent in facial recognition algorithms. As far as he's concerned, this technology will not and should not get out of the gate if the police service cannot demonstrate that its use is both fair and non-discriminatory. Porter is now considering precisely how he might amend his own guidance to ensure police forces are fully aware of the potential bias in systems and also consider what more can be done with manufacturers themselves to eliminate this. Porter is frustrated with the Home Office. He's adamant that the police service has worked hard to apply itself in adhering to the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice, itself a statute-based document which, for more than five years now, he has repeatedly been calling upon the Home Office to update, but with little in the way of a response. The Court of Appeal has suggested that these deficiencies could be addressed through updating the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice and also through national police guidance being issued. Importantly, Porter doesn't believe the Court of Appeal's judgment is in any way fatal to the use of facial recognition technology. Security Matters wholeheartedly concurs with that view. The adoption of new and advancing technologies such as facial recognition is a massively important element of keeping citizens safe. The core issue here is the overriding need to set clear parameters as to the technology's use, regulation and legal oversight. The Information Commissioner's Office backs that assertion, stating, Facial recognition relies on sensitive personal data. Balancing people's right to privacy with the surveillance technology the police service needs to carry out their role effectively is challenging, but for the public to have trust and confidence in the police service and its actions, there needs to be a clear legal framework in place. This judgment is a useful step towards providing that very framework. Our second guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Alastair Enser, the CEO of Reliance Hitech, the independent provider of electronic security and loan worker protection systems. The holder of an MBA from the University of Wales, Alastair spent seven years as Global Sales Director for Siemens Security Products before becoming President and Managing Director for the Global Technology and Products Group at Stanley. CEO at Reliance Hitech since 2018, Alistair regularly engages with customers from a wide variety of key verticals, among them practitioners working in the CNI space, government, education, healthcare and logistics. During our interview, Alistair addresses a number of issues, including the roadmap for security technology, the shifting responses to the pandemic and what they mean for security system end users, and also what the security industry should be doing to support its client base during these uncertain times. Alistair, many people are talking about a new normal resulting from the pandemic. What do you think that will look like in practice? That's a, that's a really interesting question, Brian, actually. I mean, you could probably take two views. You could take the utopian view of, you know, widened sidewalks and ample bike lanes and focus on green spaces, better work-life balance and, you know, extended networks of boulevards replacing shopping centres with people migrating away from, you know, things like public transport and either taking foot 
or um, or bikes or cars to work. But then, it, then of course, there's you know this potential dystopian view of us all being locked indoors, boarded up shops, a barren landscape, and um, you know people being socially distanced and scurrying between you know quickly between their workplace or their home. Or, or, or even not interacting at all and becoming, you know, very limited or, or, or virtual. I mean, truth be told, we don't know. I'd hope it's the former, but it's probably going to be somewhere between the two. I, I don't think it's going to go back to how it was before, certainly not for a, for a while. And I think that, you know, technology probably has a place to play in, in assisting some of this. Further to that point, Alistair, do you believe that technology is the sole answer to the challenges end users are currently facing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. As a technologist, I, I guess I have to say yes, um, but I'm not. I'm not saying that because I should. Look, we, we've all lived it and breathed it. I, I don't think any of us over the last six, eight months would have even believed we're in the position that we are now. You know, whether it's working through home with, you know the improved connectivity that we've all found ourselves having to rely on, whether it's these Teams meetings, Zoom calls, other, you know, social apps that we've we've taken to using when we couldn't visit our friends and families. Clearly technology is there and and, and even for some of us sort of naysayers, we've we've come to rely upon it. And and actually it hasn't let us down. And it's 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 worked pretty well. So I think as a public Certainly, technology has its place. And as an industry, absolutely. I mean, I think there's been lots of talk in in the press about different technologies, and I'll go on to those in a second. But ultimately, there's no silver bullet. You know, we we as an industry, we need to consider a, a much more holistic view of multiple measures and, and look at each site, each customer, each opportunity on its own merits, you know, and not just jump on a bandwagon. For example, you know, we've seen a wide focus recently on things like thermal detection on entrances, whether it's to a, an office block or, as I saw recently, in, in, in a restaurant. And look, that's definitely helpful. And, um, you know, I think thermal detection has a place to play, but it's part of a suite of measures. It's not something that you should rely on, you know, just on its own. Otherwise, you could be in danger of of you know, putting yourself in a false positive, giving yourself hope when you haven't looked at a whole situation. So you know, we've got to look at other things like managing the number of people in a building, the flow of people through a building, you know, how they're sat or distance, how much time they spend together. Combining all of those things, for example, with track and trace through other technologies. And I think most importantly, and this, you know, this is for us as an industry, as well as for our customers, combining it to an output. You know, we, we've really got to ask ourselves, what, what am I controlling? What, what am I trying to achieve? What am I collecting? Why am I doing this? And then how do I react? Because it's, it's all well and good doing temperature screening or managing the flow of people through a building. But but ultimately, are we trying to reduce a risk? Are we trying to catch an infection and therefore then notify other people that they may be at risk? So we need to have lots of processes around what we do and a tangible output. For me, it's great having data, but those clear objectives and rules of engagement are, are you know vitally important. We continually go into the, the deep realms of things like GDPR and, and privacy, uh, and that clearly is is a concern. 
not just for the for the general public, for, but for us as well. You know, at, at Reliance, we ran a survey recently, and it was clear from our our kind of readership or our um, cohorts that, that interestingly, most people trusted their employers more than anyone else. In our survey, you know, well over sixty percent, nearly seventy percent of the people said they trusted their employers with this sort of data and information. And actually, the government was second, which you could say was surprising. I, I, I don't know. Places like um, retailers and pubs, whilst there was an element of trust, uh, and I'm not saying that people were distrusting of them, the you know the difference in trust was was down in the sort of mid twenties compared to, as I said, sixty to seventy percent for government employers. So harvesting information, whether it's giving a phone number or using a thermal camera clearly has a you know has a privacy question around it and and i think one other really interesting point was that we also asked people what what was their acceptance of different types of technology so for example temperature screening using thermal cameras 62% of our respondents i think it may be even higher were, were, were quite happy with that. But a very high percentage, it was more than 60%, said that they absolutely didn't like the idea of risk profiling. So that was when companies or, or shops or the government or anyone else would look at not only what they were doing there and then, but where they'd been before, who they visited over the weekend, what, what social group do you fall into? and then building up a profile of you as, a, as an individual. So on the one hand, there seemed to be quite a high acceptance of things like technology and you know CCTV and thermal detection being repurposed. But on the other hand, a definite reticence towards people you know having this this sort of risk profiling uh, approach. And then somewhere in the middle, things like COVID tests, traditional temperature monitoring using a thermometer or a digital thermometer, they were reasonably acceptable, but interestingly, not, not as acceptable as, as the cameras. Maybe it's that they were seen as a bit more invasive and, you know, walking past a camera doesn't take a lot of effort. So, you know, people were, were happier with that, perhaps. I don't know. In terms of the shifting responses to the pandemic, Alistair, what have these meant exactly for security system and users, in your view? Well, that's, that's a toughie. I mean, you know, this is and has and will continue to be a very dynamic situation, both for, for security users and, you know, for the suppliers. And, and it's a big challenge. I think that whatever the answers, the solutions definitely have to be agile. They've got to be dynamic, flexible and rapidly deployable, um, you know, particularly when you look at what happened at the beginning of lockdown, when people fled from their sites and actually then couldn't put lots of things in place because there was no one there. So, you know, from a consumer perspective, they, of course, need to be affordable and proportionate to the risk. So it, it's great for, for, you know, integrators like myself to have, uh, you know, a suite of tools um, and solutions available for people, but they've got to be appropriate for, for their risk. So if I go back to that, that point about lockdown, as an example, during the first lockdown, and we've kind of had subsequent ones, many sites were, were simply cut off from the world as they didn't have remote access in place. Their, their buildings were exited and everybody, you know, kind of metaphorically ran out the door screaming and, and the doors were locked. And, and that meant that, you know, using remote monitoring, remote maintenance, remote servicing to keep their security alive was 
was either physically impossible or, or, or very difficult. And we had a number of approaches from people very early on saying, can we get emergency cover from your monitoring centre? What do we need to do to, you know, to get connected in? So, you know, and, and this was this was sometimes from some large corporations or public buildings where, you know, the public might have visited in the past, suddenly realising that they have a security gap. As we progressed and things came on stream and we started to relax and, and were able to get back to work to an extent, the rules have kept changing. So social distancing went from zero to two metres and then it became one metre plus. And then we had the whole question of whether we should wear masks or shouldn't wear masks whether we could travel in a group of one or in a group of two or maybe a family group of six with some friends round. More recently, this whole debate about things like weddings and, and larger groups. So in, you know, in England, weddings of up to 30 people, but in Scotland, only 20. And then, you know, most recently, we've, we've got these challenges where we've had to reintroduce lockdowns in different parts of the country. So why, why is that? pertinent for a security user well if i'm a if i'm a you know a head of security or, or risk for a large multinational or even a medium-sized business i might have sites around the country some are in lockdown some are not some are in scotland some are in england some are stuck with with local rules based on local lockdowns which might be more severe than the rules that i have in other areas so for my security system, anything that I can do, which is going to assist in that by having dynamic changes that I can make by having different rules on on things like analytics, which apply to different sites and different situations is going to be a real you know benefit to me. And as that risk profile changes, being able to adapt those on the fly rather than putting down a sticker that says, today it's one metre, not two metres, that, that, that just gives me a lot more flexibility to react to the situation. So I think, you know, for security users, the use of cloud, the use of as-a-service models, where we can do, you know, very quick implementation, very simple changes, which might have a large effect, whilst repurposing their core security, is going to be a massive benefit, not only just for their security requirements, which we, you know, let's not forget we can't lose sight of, but also ensure that their campuses and offices stay safe and that the risk is managed for people if they visit or, or use those those offices. And what should the security industry be doing as a collective analyst to support organisations at this time, do you think? Well, I, I think the first thing we should do is listen and the first thing we shouldn't do is do you know that, that, that as i sort of said earlier there's there's lots of people that have jumped on the bandwagon of well look you know we, we can potentially make a quick buck selling thermal cameras and look there's nothing wrong with that in the right situations absolutely but i think as an industry we should be really responsible and we should take time to understand the individual needs um and you know listen to their problems and, and not just assume that we know the answer. Um, so, you know, thermal cameras, is it necessary? Yes, absolutely, in, in some opportunities. Um, but every opportunity is different. So ultimately, as an industry, we should take a step back and say, 
what are we here for? We're here really, in my view, to help people get back to business, to maintain their, their core security and to help them in a potentially higher risk world and to deliver value beyond security in terms of you know, what we can do to assist in safe return to work because of this pandemic. So a number of different things that, that we can do. So let's let's not lose sight of our core, but let's look at where we can add value. I mean, if, if we look at the press, you know, we've seen press reports from around the world suggesting recently that things like, unsurprisingly, masked crime is on the increase. Well, people are wearing masks and now they don't have to remove them when they go into shops or banks because they're required to wear them. And of course, you know, people have been opportunistic in, in taking advantage of that in some areas. Cybercrime has, has, you know, been reported to increase. And, you know, a lot of that is because offices are, are unprotected. A lot more people are working from home on unsecure networks, maybe through hastily applied VPNs. And so the corporate in- infrastructure is, is is, is weakened. Potential pockets of civil unrest and, and people demonstrating, whether it's, you know, anti-mask movements or, or other things have been seen. And then very recently, even the UN have, have raised concerns about terrorism and potential radicalization. You know, as an example, students who, who are no longer in education because they've been, you know, sort of dislodged temporarily, uh, are now being potentially targeted for, for radicalization because they're at home and they're online and they may not have other things to do. So I, I think as a response, the industry needs to look at all of those, those risks uh, and say, look, the risk profile is changing in the industry or potentially will change. How do we react? Don't just do what we've always done. But, but think differently, do differently, and, and, and really listen to each of our end users and customers and understand what their individual risk profile is and help you know, give them answers. I mean, for example, at, at Reliance High Tech, we, we've seen accelerated acceptance towards cloud. We've always worked on that because we see it as the future, but definitely more people have been asking about hosted technology um, to help with deployment, um, where they've particularly been caught on the hop at the beginning of lockdown. Um, we've seen a higher demand for things like body-worn video, particularly in areas like retail, where staff are, are, are now at a higher risk. I mean, who would have thought that staff were potentially having to run the door five or six months ago? But that's happening now in a, in a lot of places. So the, the risk is different. Um, and I think finally on that point... As an industry, we've got to do all of this in a cyber secure way. So we've got to we've got to up our skills. We've got to have the right skills. Um, and I think there's a you know a graying of the natural lines between where does security stop and start, where does risk management come in, where does IoT stop and start, where does cyber stop and start. These these lines are getting ever more grey. And looking ahead. What should the security industry be doing beyond the pandemic? Well, I think ultimately there's probably a one one line answer, which is we just need to adapt to the changing world and we need to do it fast. You know, the longer answer is we, we've been through a, a number of rebirths over the years. Uh, you know, I've been in the industry for 
25 years and there's been lots happened then and a lot before then as well. We've moved from standalone access control and hardwired closed circuit cameras to network access control and IP cameras and streaming to network video recorders. And that's all happened over the last few years. But the next step is, is, is happening now and is almost certainly accelerating due to COVID. I think the acceptance of of technology. The rate of change is, is sort of accelerated. I think we are moving faster towards cloud and hosted systems. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have on, on-premise security, but just bringing in things like software as a service and converging those worlds of IoT and cyber, which I mentioned earlier, there's there's a greater degree of acceptance now as a result of, of you know what we've all been thrown into. So as an industry, we're going to have to adapt. We're going to have to upskill our traditional engineering skills and even move our salespeople just from selling technology to a more consultative approach and able to you know identify those softer business benefits, those risks and those opportunities just beyond somebody breaking a window and grabbing a laptop. I've been saying to our team for a long time, we, we've always protected physical assets but now we're really protecting data, people and reputations just as much. And I think we'll see a we'll see a change in our industry as we move forward over the next year, two years, three years and even five years as this happens. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to David Ward of Ward Security and the City Security Council, and also Alistair Enser from Reliance Hightech for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcasts and read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our weekly news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag securitypod. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time. 